7. Psalm 37 from verse 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he shall not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. The uh, passage uh, clearly teaches the perseverance of the saints that God does not let our hands go. And we may uh, fall, but we never fall so completely that it can be described as being hurled headlong, not if we know the Lord. And then uh, would you also turn please to John chapter 6, which uh, also speaks of some of these things. John 6 verses, I'll read verses 28 to 40. The text for the sermon is verses 35 to 40, and then I'll read from the Westminster Confession. John 6 from verse 28. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They, therefore, they said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Now a text through to verse 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, 
and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And then in your bulletin, you should find a copy of the Westminster chapter 8 and article 8 in this chapter on Christ as a mediator, the one mediator. Article 8, to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them and revealing unto them in and by the word the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey and governing their hearts by his word and spirit overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to stick like glue to the truth rather than being swayed by error, however smoothly that error may be presented, or tempted by sin, no matter how attractive it may be made to appear. And Father, to that end, will you teach us to know and to love and to defend the truth in increasing measure. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, uh, one of the common expressions among reformers in reform circles since the time of the Reformation in speaking about the work of the Lord Jesus as mediator and what comes to pass as a result of that work, how the Lord Jesus ensures that that work of his is applied. One of those famous sayings from reform people is that Jesus' work for his people can never ever be in vain. That's such a common expression in the reformers. And this expression doesn't simply mean that it would be too scandalous for God to go to such lengths to save sinners as to send his only son to the cross, only to have sinners later reject that offer. Something like the idea where you, uh, you buy an expensive present for someone only to find the recipient doesn't want it can be uh, a bit disappointing, especially if you spend a fair bit of money on it. So some seem to have that idea that uh, the Lord Jesus uh, doesn't like his work to be made in vain because he's gone to all this trouble and God has gone to all this trouble and it shouldn't be wasted, it shouldn't be made vain, but they nevertheless argue it can be made vain. And uh, so you sometimes hear this in Arminian evangelism, they sometimes use this argument that Jesus died for you and he went through so much agony for you don't waste that expense. Don't waste that agony that the Lord Jesus went through for you. Well, the issue here is the nature of Jesus' work and whether it guarantees salvation for his sheep, uh, whether that guarantee of the Lord Jesus can be made null and void. 
And there are really two issues in that, and that's what this article is about in the Westminster. It's about the application or communication of Jesus' benefits, that which he did in his lifetime for his people. Two issues in that. Uh, first of all, uh, will those for whom Jesus died actually come to him and believe in him in time? And secondly, having come, will they remain with him? If you believe that sinners have free will and that the free will of the sinner is the deciding factor, then there really is no absolute guarantee. But if you believe that it comes down to God's sovereignty, then there is a resounding yes to those two questions. They will come and they will stay. And that is what we find taught in our text and that is what we find also taught in this article in the Westminster Confession. And that is a resounding yes to both questions that comes for three reasons. First of all, because of the Father's will. Secondly, because of the Son's accomplishment. And thirdly, because of the Spirit's application. The Father's will, the Son's accomplishment, and the Spirit's application. In the first place then, we have these two views, these two main views about the communication of Christ's benefits. A, it comes down to man's free will to accept it or to reject it and then there really are no guarantees. Or B, it ultimately depends on God's electing purposes, in which case there is an absolute guarantee. So as I mentioned, John chapter 6 gives the second answer to these questions. Option B, and so does the Westminster, and the Westminster puts it this way, to all those for whom Christ purchased redemption. In other words, everybody for whom Jesus died, he certainly and effectually applies and communicates the same. So what he did for, for them on the cross, for every single person for whom he died, what he did for them there is applied to them, to all of them and applied to them certainly and effectually. The text and the Westminster imply both election and also the doctrine of limited atonement. Uh, election, the truth that God chose those whom he would save from eternity. And limited atonement, that Jesus came to die with the intention of saving only that same group of people those who were given him by his father, his sheep, the elect. And that's the kind of language we find very strongly in this text, especially in verses 37 and 39, uh, where the Lord Jesus refers to all that the father gives me. And you find, I mentioned this a few weeks ago in a sermon, you find much the same language in John 17 with its multiple references in that chapter to those sheep who were given to Jesus by the Father in order to gain eternal life for them. A note, not just to make possible that they would have eternal life if they choose it of their own free will, but actually to gain it for them, to achieve and accomplish this. And John 17 is clear on that, and so really is this passage here. So we're talking here about the choosing of some for salvation from before the world even began 
and that selection, and then we're also talking about Jesus' death for those same people. That's the teaching of limited atonement or definite atonement or particular redemption or whatever else you want to call it along those lines, several terms. Moreover, the Father's will, it's, that's one thing that you have the sheep who are given, but the Father's will is also that the Lord Jesus will lose nothing of all that is given to him. Verse 39, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will certainly be raised up on the last day. Verse 40, you see how clear and how strong the language is here. And since the Lord Jesus comes only to do the Father's will, verse 38, there is no chance of any different agenda than what we read about here in this chapter. It's not like with political parties where you maybe vote for a certain party because they have uh, wonderful promises and it fits in so well with our Christian views and you vote for them and you find that when they get in government that individuals in the party are actually pursuing quite a different line and turn back on the things that the party has stated as their platform. But it's not like that. There is no different agenda between the Father and the Son. And so the saints, the sheep, they must continue and they will continue with their shepherd because this is the will of the Father and this is the will of the Son and it is an, an absolutely sovereign will. And so we have here also the teaching of the preservation or perseverance of the saints. And the other question that I raised before is also answered here in these verses with reference to the, the will of God, the will of the Father. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So we have both issues ultimately determined by God's eternal decree. The elect will come to Christ in time and having come, they will remain with him to be raised up everlastingly because he has gained eternal life for them. And this is, of course, and ought to be, a great comfort to you. It ought to be a great comfort that it does not depend on your so-called free will, ultimately. No, the Christian is a chosen saint. You are a chosen sheep. And moreover, you are a given saint. You've been given away, given to the Lord Jesus. You are a given sheep. No assurance of salvation can logically exist where the alleged free will of the sinner becomes the key factor. But our assurance does not come from the myth of free will. Our assurance comes from the guarantee of the absolutely sovereign, gracious God. An assurance that guaranteed, a guarantee that springs from before this world even began in eternity, in the eternal decree of the great King, but which has also been taken up by the Son of God and recorded in the Word of God in time. Now, I believe that the Lord, uh, knowing our weakness, goes to extraordinary lengths to help us in our doubts. Well, we could stop at that point and say we have everything we need to be assured of our salvation. Every bit of truth we need, it's already said in what's just been looked at in this first point. But the Lord knows our weakness and he knows that even when he gives us so many assurances, we still have this tendency to 
to uh, slip away from those assurances and to doubt for various reasons, whether that would be to doubt God or to doubt that we are Christians, to wonder if perhaps we're just fooling ourselves. So the Lord knows that we have those problems and so as so often in the scripture, he piles reason upon reason upon reason to guarantee salvation to all who believe. And so we find in this passage that he not only predestines, all the she- predestines that all the sheep will come to the Lord Jesus, all those given, and they will remain with the Lord Jesus because that's the Father's will, but he also indicates that he has sent his Son to secure a once-for-all accomplishment, a once-for-all carrying out of that same will of the Father. Our second point the Son's accomplishment. In the text, the Lord Jesus therefore gives a guarantee concerning his mission and the results of his work. He says, I am the bread of life, verse 35, which indicates that he feeds his sheep spiritually with himself with the result that we gain life and that life is sustained in us, so it is spiritual life and it is unto eternity, it is everlasting life. That's what it means to say that Jesus is the bread of life. But notice what he goes on to say. He says that he who comes to him and he who believes in him will not hunger and he will never thirst. So it's not just that he feeds, but he feeds us in such a way that we never hunger or thirst once we have come to him. And that never is a very, very long time. And here again, then, we have this assurance of the preservation of the saints. Because there is a promise here of continued life from the bread of life, the water of life, in such a way that you will never, ever hunger or thirst spiritually. Not once you have first known, truly known, that life that comes from the Lord Jesus. Similarly, in verse 37, he says, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Again, the idea that once you're with him, you you can't be taken away. Verse 39, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Again, that certainty. The Lord Jesus' work cannot be made vain by the sheep. And uh, think about that for a moment. This is no animal farm, Orwellian animal farm situation where the animals revolt And by their free will, they overturn and even kill the the farmer, the shepherd in this case we're talking about. This is no animal farm. The work of the shepherd cannot be overturned by the sheep. Who do we think we are? Who does man think he is? The Lord's work cannot be made vain. He has said he will never cast you out. He will never lose you. That assurance comes from him. Uh, from who he is and from what he came to do and from what he has done. It doesn't come from our imagined free will. Nothing in creation, not your will or mine, not even the will of the devil, can overturn Christ's work and separate us from God's love in Christ, as Romans 8 verses 37 to 39 makes abundantly clear. Now, the text doesn't go into the specifics of this work of the Lord Jesus 
this particular text is more concerned about the results. The Westminster has a little bit more to say about the ground of that, uh, the, or the detail of that work. And uh, so I want to summarise that and also add a little bit in from the Scripture because I want to make clear this way in which God has piled up those, that reason upon reason to accept what is said here about the result because there are so many angles that you can approach this from, all of which lead to the same conclusion that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be made vain. It cannot be overturned. One of those has to do, one of those lines of argument has to do with the fact that when we come to the Lord Jesus to believe in him, we are united with him by faith and we are united with the one who is our head and representative. And as our head and representative, everything he did in his lifetime on earth, in obeying his father, in dying on the cross, in rising from the dead, in ascending to heaven, and in sitting, for that matter, at the right, the right hand of his father in glory, all of that is something that we have a share in, by definition. It's something that is counted as ours, as if we had done it ourselves. His work has legal effects. It answers the claims of God's justice against us because of our sin. The resurrection life of the Lord Jesus must have an effect and result in life for us because he did that as our head and representative. And we are in him and united to him and share in that. His work cannot be made vain because he has acted as our legal head in this way and satisfied and paid for our sins, satisfied God's justice and paid the debt for our sins. And it would be unjust for God to demand payment twice. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes you get a bill from a shop when you've already paid from it. It can be quite annoying. You have to go to the trouble of contacting them again and proving that you have actually paid for it and hopefully eventually you get it sorted out. But God doesn't work that way. He doesn't make mistakes in the first place with billing and he doesn't uh, try and rip anybody off either by double billing. So when Jesus has paid for these things, they remain paid for and they do not have to be and they cannot justly be sought again. The redemption of the Lord Jesus, therefore, doesn't redeem in some abstract and theoretical way. It really does something. It really accomplishes something. He has actually atoned for the sins of his people. He has actually covered those sins and they cannot be uncovered or unatoned. He has appeased God and that cannot be changed. He has reconciled us to God and that cannot be changed. And even now he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding and applying the benefits of his work to us daily. And do you think for one moment that the Father will not listen to the Son in that? That the Father will suddenly say, I'm not going to accept that now for this person, uh, they're going to have to pay again. No, the Father sent him to do that in the first place. It is the Father and the Son's will. And it cannot be made of no avail. Uh, not only so, more reasons piled up. Uh, also, as the Westminster Confession points out here, the Lord Jesus has made sure that we receive the word of salvation. The sheep given to him, 
always get the gospel at a certain point. And the word, God's word, always accomplishes the purposes for which he sends it out. It never returns to him empty and void. It never is in vain. And its purpose, in part, is to reach the elect, those sheep given to the Lord Jesus with that gospel. He has sent his spirit out. The Lord Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit to apply Christ's work to us from within us on earth, even while he does so at the right hand of God in heaven. And the Spirit also is the sovereign God whose purposes cannot be thwarted. And as if that is not enough, the Lord Jesus also protects us from our enemies, all who would seek to destroy your faith. Uh, If it were up to our free will, we would listen to them. We would listen to Satan, or listen to Satan's allies on earth, or listen to our old nature as it tells us not to go and believe in the Lord Jesus. But we are guarded sheep. How many guarantees do you want? I'm sure you can find more in the scripture. This is just a small selection. But these are very powerful guarantees, each and every one of them. Well, I mentioned that part of the Lord Jesus' way of guaranteeing our salvation is sending the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to continue his work on earth. Uh, That is a subject, the work of the Spirit, worth considering in its own right. And the Westminster will go on to do so from chapter 10 forward. But uh, I want to say a little bit more about it at this point because it is implied in the text. Our third and final point, the Spirit's application. The implication of this lies in verse 37. It's not the, the Holy Spirit's work is not openly mentioned here at this point, but it is implied when the Lord says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. But how does the Lord Jesus make sure that they come? And how does the Lord Jesus make sure that they stay? Again, no guarantee of that happening if it were up to our free will, because the fact is that sinners are not free. They're in bondage to Satan and to sin. But it is the Holy Spirit who does that work along with the Word of God, the Holy Spirit who gives us a new life, regeneration. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith so that we respond to that regeneration. There is repentance and turning to the Lord Jesus as well so that we do believe in and come to the Lord Jesus so that all who are given to the Lord Jesus will irresistibly, effectually be persuaded and drawn. That's why the Westminster puts it this way, the Holy Spirit effectually persuades all those for whom Christ purchased redemption so that we do believe and obey. And once we have believed, he also continues to govern our hearts and lives from within, along with the word of God. Uh, In Romans 8, 14, we read that the sons of God are led by the Holy Spirit. We're governed by the Holy Spirit. If you believe in the Lord Jesus... You have the Spirit indwelling and He leads and governs you. And indeed, because the Lord Jesus has one life for us, He's the bread of life, and that life is not only eternal life, it is also spiritual life in this time, this this lifetime. Therefore, all of those for whom the Lord Jesus died must receive 
the spirit of sanctification as well, so that there is spiritual life that lives and grows within us progressively through our lifetimes. Justification always closely connected to sanctification. You can't separate the two. Now you may think to yourself, how can I be sure I'll be saved? What if I give myself over to sin in the future? What if I should even commit the unforgivable sin? But that would only imply that you do not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you now. You do not have the Holy Spirit leading you, governing you, sanctifying you even now. Or it would imply that you are somehow capable of defeating the purpose for which God sent the Spirit to work within you, to dwell within you. And that is something that will not happen and cannot happen if you have believed. As we read in Ephesians 1 verse 13, you, if you are a Christian, you are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And uh, sealing means something that's permanent. You have that permanent seal placed upon you. Now, of course, that is no excuse for presumptuous sinning. If you turn away finally from the Lord Jesus Christ and go back to your old life, you cannot claim that you ever truly came to him or that you ever truly had his spirit indwelling or that you ever truly believed his word or that you were ever truly one of his sheep. But though you will no doubt commit many sins, even as one of his sheep, and as his sheep we do commit many sins every day, nevertheless, we have these, I wouldn't only say this guarantee, but these guarantees, with all those many facets of it, which we've only looked at a small uh, portion of, you have this guarantee from him that he will not let your enemy finally overcome you. The Father's election, the Son's once-for-all accomplished work, and the Spirit's sovereign and irresistible application guarantee it. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, discern the... Uh, the best uh, response when um, we are tempted by, to stray by those who try to uh, encourage us to, to do that. We pray that uh, you would also encourage us at times when we, uh, we feel keenly those temptations or when we fear that in the future we might be inclined to go in that direction, that we fear of what we might do in the future and when we are inclined to doubt the um, position that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, in all of those cases, we pray that you would help us to fall back on your promises, to fall back upon your guarantees that uh, come in so many ways in your word and that we would look not at ourselves on those occasions so much as to fix our eyes upon the Lord Jesus and to know that confidence, that certainty and that assurance that comes through looking to him for, Father, we acknowledge that if we would only look at ourselves, there would be no certainty. If we would only consider our own wills, there would be no certainty. But your will and the, the accomplishment of your Son and the work of your Holy Spirit within us on earth, even at this present time, Father, these are the things 
that give us this assurance that those you have laid hold of and brought to know your Son, that you will never let us go, that we will never be separated from your love in Christ. And we thank you for this promise and assurance in his name. Amen. God is uh, our shield amid the strife. And, and again, that, that terminology of God being our shield, uh, that indicates that protection that God gives to his people to uh, preserve us in Christ. And uh, we'll sing in that line uh, number 291 in the Salt Hymnal. We'll stand to sing. And would you please remain standing afterwards for the blessing and doxology. 291. After the blessing is our doxology, we sing number 231. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 